0: Uh, next week, and I'm going to be beginning a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to be taking us through uh, the whole rest of the time that Daryl is on sabbatical, but considering that we've just been in a few weeks in the Gospels talking about the, the Kingdom of God, and being that the the Sermon on the Mount is uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to take a, a little break just for, for today to be looking at, at Psalm 1, um, for one reason, because if nothing else, because there is, um, it's good to have a little bit of variety in our diet and of, of the word here. So we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter one today. But uh, before we we turn to uh, the reading and the preaching of God's word, let's pray for the Spirit of God to to be uh, at work and to be blessing it, and uh, for us as hearers as well. Lord, we come before you here wanting to, and needing to hear your voice, and we thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know who you are and that you have spoken clearly to us, that we can understand it, and we pray that for this time here now that your spirit would be working and helping us to understand your word, to be having a heart that is softened to it, to have the seeds planted and that your spirit would be watering them so that It might flourish in in our hearts then. Father, we pray for the one preaching also that you would forgive his sins and that your spirit would be poured out upon him as well. For the sake of Jesus, amen. All right, this is Psalm chapter one. This is the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. What is a prosperous life? And how do I get there? That's a question that many people, many philosophers, many religions have pondered throughout the ages. But that's a question, though, not only for intellectuals, that's a question for everyday people like you and me also. Maybe some of you have thought, well a prosperous life maybe that's by graduating finally being able to graduate and leave home maybe some of you have thought oh a, a, a prosperous life well that would be being free of debt or maybe it would be oh if i could find some some peace and stability in life that would be a prosperous life or maybe it's for some of you oh if i can reach if i can only reach retirement or i know some of you are, are thinking wow well, how can if i can figure out how to stop being so busy now that i'm retired that would be a prosperous life but it's also a question though that psalm 1 sets forth here psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm and the psalms were first of all they were they were prayers and so this is a prayer it was actually a song that was sung as well but it's also something that teaches us it's a prayer that imparts wisdom and teaches us and we see that right away as it begins blessed is the man Blessed is the man was a wisdom phrase that described what would be considered a prosperous or a flourishing life. It's easy for us to read this as, well, okay, blessed is the man, this is how a person then receives blessing. If I do this, then blessing will come to me then. But the thing is, this is a different Hebrew word, dear, than just simply bestowing blessing or of actively being favored. The idea here instead, when it says, blessed is the man, is it's the blessed is a state of flourishing, or it's a state of those describing those people who are blessed or who have been blessed. So the idea here isn't, okay, this is how to receive blessing. The idea here instead is that this is what a flourishing person looks like. It's the same idea, the same word actually used in 1 Kings 10. Uh, verse eight, when you have the queen of Sheba who comes and visits King Solomon in all of his glory, this, uh, this great, prosperous kingdom. And she looks at it all and she's bowled over and she says, blessed are your servants. The idea in it isn't that she is going to give blessing to the servants, but rather she's just saying, your servants are blessed, they are flourishing for being in your kingdom. And Psalm one then is describing a flourishing or a prosperous life. Blessed is the man there. And it describes and it sets forth how you get there. And it does so by laying out these two paths. As it begins, there, there are two paths. Blessed is the, the man who does not walk in the ways of the wicked or in the counsel of the wicked. And the uh, verse one there sets out the first path. and we'll see that both these paths diverge from one another. Uh, the first path here, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's describing here, a, a, first of all, a, the path not to go down. It's a, the path of those who are not in accordance with God. Talks about the wicked, sinners, these words that describe in kind of this all-encompassing way an unrighteous way of living that is an antithesis with God. Talks about scoffers, or perhaps a better word for us, would be scorners, those who mock what is right and what is true. And as we read it too, there's even these, this variance in the verbs and the words that describe this, these varying levels of conformity to these ways. See, it may not always be at the same level, but it's still walking along the same path. This one path has many variants that weave in and out of it there. It has a lot of side paths that you can take. Walking in counsel It describes the mind and thoughts, values, wisdom, the ways of thinking. But then we have standing in the way. That's action right there. Or sitting in the seat, sitting in the midst. That's identification. So that whether it be imbibing passively of unvirtuous wisdom, maybe on one side of the spectrum, or on the other end of the spectrum, it's aggressively mocking. It's all still in the same spectrum of the of the same path there. But again, these we have two paths, and they diverge from one another. So the other path is in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We have a sharp juxtaposition. Like this, this path that you're on, it suddenly, it whys, All right, You can either go left or right, and this one here is in sharp juxtaposition. The law of the Lord, delighting in it. Now, why the law? That has a lot of strange connotations for us. Well, when it says law, it's referring to what we what we, if you've ever heard the word Torah, it's not just the law, as in like the Ten Commandments, but it's talking about the greater instruction of the Lord. In fact, in a broader sense, it's not only referring to the law of God, or even what's known as in, in the Jewish faith today, the the, the Torah being the, the first five books of the Bible, it's referring ultimately to his whole self-revelation that is inscripturated in his word. And so for these people in their original context, that was the Old Testament. And then for us then, as we read that, it includes the New Testament now for us. But what's key here isn't just having God's word. What's key here is the delight and the meditation on God's word. Because it's easy for us to go about it in a rote manner or just simply check off the box. Yep, I got, uh, I, 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 memorized some verses, check. I've read my Bible today, check. That's not it. It's, these verbs get at something much deeper. It's an internalizing. So that the whole life then will then conform around it. Meditate, not in a new age idea of meditation, but meditate as in fixing your thoughts upon, thinking on it, pondering on it. In fact, the, the Hebrew word even has this connotation of mumbling, like running over it in your mind and talking to yourself about it. And then this word delight, delighting in the law of the Lord. That's to take pleasure, to take enjoyment. See, all of this is more than just a mere knowing. It's a love for God's word. Coming to it and savoring it like you would a really phenomenal meal. There are times when you eat things just for, for simple sustenance. But then there are also times when you come to the table and you can't wait to sit down because you see the rich feast that is laid out for you there. And it's those delicious meals that demand savoring. It almost doesn't do it justice when you have something really good right there and you, and you just gobble it down. See, God's word is rich. It's full of delight for us to not only know it, but also to love it to internalize it, to let it sink into our souls, to dwell upon it and to set our affections upon it. Because it is the very word of God. It's the very self-revelation of God to us. So we come to it and we savor it like we would a fine meal. But like many things in life, it requires knowing how to properly enjoy it. How do you gain a palate for God's word? the same as you do in any other way. You need to be taught. It doesn't come natural. If you're trying to enjoy a a meal or a drink or a type of cuisine that you're pretty unfamiliar with, you need someone to teach you how to enjoy it. Someone to walk alongside you there and tell you all about the nuances, about the tastes, about how to pair it with this. Oh no, no, eat this after this. Now, okay, now wash it down with some of this to really get the full effect. You can do that with God's word when you read it with others. Just as meals are meant to be communal, so is the word of God meant to be communal. Read it with others. Talk about it, especially those who have read it maybe longer than you have. Get more insights. Even talk with one another about the mutual enjoyment you can have there. But what's even better isn't just talking with someone that's very knowledgeable about a particular cuisine. What's even better is when the chef comes out and gives you all of the insights into how he cooked your food, into the flavor profiles, into the techniques, and on and on. So when you come to God's word, do you ask the chef to enlighten your understanding of the meal that you're about to enjoy? In other words, do you ask the spirit to enlighten your understanding of the word that you sit down to enjoy? The spirit of God who inspired the very scriptures that we have continues then to open up our understandings to them. And so do you want to gain a palate for God's word? Do you want to learn how to savor it? Then pray that the spirit of God would would teach you. Pray before you approach it. That's why we pray before we come to the word in this time here. Every time you sit down to read, even just a, a simple prayer, asking the spirit to illumine your understanding and he will hear you because he wants you to know his word. We have this sharp juxtaposition, though, as we continue to look at this psalm. Okay, look, we have two paths there, right? We have either the way of the wicked or the way of God. But are there really only two ways? Because it seems like maybe there should be a third here. We can imagine some ways that are, oh, that's particularly wicked. Yes, those are scorners. But is that really all-encompassing? Isn't there a path that may not be from God, but isn't exactly wicked? Because it sounds kind of extreme to us. And it's put here as either God or the unbelieving word. It's very stark. And it sounds difficult. But there are ultimately two ways here. There is no middle path. There is no alternate way. Because each path is defined by its relation to God. It either follows after the creator in his goodness or it follows its own path. In other words, we can either follow his good intentions for us, or we go and we blaze our own divergent trail according to our own desires and ways. And human history is really just one long story that we have of our own wanderings from God and our own devisings of our own ways. It's essentially the same story on repeat, just with different characters and with slightly different retellings. And people either individually or people in groups, people rejecting the intentions of the loving and the good creator in favor of their own ways, and then subsequently getting lost. And that might be difficult for us to really grasp, particularly if we don't exactly like the places where God's word takes us, the places where it calls us to, the things that it demands of us. We would rather go where we want to or we sometimes find ourselves glancing jealously at the other path. But meditating upon God's word is also, though, meditating upon God. Because it is, the, again, the very self-revelation of God, and God tells us what he's like. As we meditate more on his word in all of its fullness, then we start to see him as less abstract, and we begin to see him a little more defined. That his ways are, are a, a reflection of who he is. That he's not a totalitarian or a heartless authority. But he is the fount of all goodness whose will is for us to follow his paths that he has set out for our goodness. And he calls whatever assumptions and whatever values that we have to question. He calls them to the carpet and asks us to line up them up with his good intentions that he has for us. So we have two paths there. These two divergent paths, and like all paths, all paths lead to an end. So we have two paths, but we also have two ends. We see them here in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, we have the first one, who is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who follows along the paths of God. And it says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. He will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. Now what better image to convey flourishing than a well-watered tree? The one who delights in the law of the Lord is like a lush tree, full of leaves, with refreshing juicy fruit on it, green and lively. There are reasons why trees are a common image to picture life. And the flourishing tree here is the picture of the one who sets himself on God's word. It says that in all that he does, he prospers. And in setting himself on God's word, then he then sets himself upon God's promises, drawing life and refreshment from God's word and his character. But what matters here for the, the tree to thrive isn't necessarily the conditions that it's in or the surrounding climate, but it's where those roots are. Trees can flourish and they can bear fruit even in hot, arid desert climates. In fact, if you've ever driven through a desert before, you can look out, and it's pretty barren. There's not a lot of trees out there. But then you reach a stream, and that's where you see the trees. That's where you even see trees, not just, not just bringing forth leaf, green leaves, but also sometimes bringing forth fruit. Because what matters isn't the surrounding climate, but where the roots are sunk and where they're deriving their life from. And so just then, as the tree can grow lush, and flourish in a, in a hostile environment because the roots are well watered, so can we. There's an illusion that flourishing comes primarily from the environment that we're in. That if we place ourselves in an environment that we consider to be safe, that it will lead to our flourishing. We live here in a very secular place here in Sonoma County. And so the temptation can be that if I hold myself away, and if I control the climate that I'm in, then I will thrive. But a tree can be planted in even the most hospitable climate. But unless the roots drink deeply from the stream, it's not going to flourish. And a person will not flourish merely because of the hospitable environment, but because, though, of where the roots are sunk. And a person will flourish then even when they feel the most heat around them, when their roots are sunk deep into God's word, imbibing in his promises and in his goodness. So we have one end there, the, way, the flourishing way, but then verse 4 talks about where the other path leads. The wicked are not sober like chaff that the wind drives, a fr- drives away. On one hand, we have a fruitful tree, but here we have fruitless or fading or futile dry chaff. The wicked are put in this sharp juxtaposition there chaff was as dry, lifeless husks that were left over th- from threshing grain. It was the, the husk and the hole of the, the kernel. The grain would be, would be beaten and tossed in the threshing process. And then it, you'd be in a, in, a, in a windy place and you would toss the grain up in the air. And the heavier grain would fall to the ground. But then the chaff was light and it was dry and it would blow away in the wind. And it had no better use than to, than to be swept up into a pile and ultimately to be burned. And as opposed to a firmly rooted tree, the chaff could be scattered just with a mere, a mere puff of air. So what does the path of the, liquid, of the wicked lead to? Dryness and lifelessness. Because there's no rooting. There's no watering or flourishing. No source of life to course through it. Now, this is a wisdom psalm, and so it poses a question to us. Which do you want to be like? Do you want to be like the tree, or do you want to be like the chaff? Do you want to flourish and be rooted, or be blasted aside by the wind? Essentially, which of these is the prosperous life? It's a rhetorical question. We have a, it has a clear answer. We want to be like the tree. And how do you get there to be the tree? It's the one who delights in the ways of the Lord. That's the one who flourishes. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the path to flourishing follows carefully alongside the knowledge of God. Yet even though there's this clear answer that we have here, there's still a disconnect that we have in our experience. Do we really believe that following God's path is the one that leads to a flourishing and a prosperous life? Or even to drive this a little further at the end of verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. That's a present tense verb. And that means that it's telling us that there's a very real sense of flourishing and a prosperous life to be had even right now. Do we believe that? In fact, can we even take that seriously? Because it seems like this is promising some sort of prosperity or a health and wealth gospel, and that I'm being shorted right now. Because the world is full of people who dedicate their lives to walking the path of God's word, and they don't seem to be particularly prosperous. And for some of you, that doesn't just seem that just doesn't seem to match your experiences. You've tried to follow God and you've tried to do what is right, but you just can't seem to find any real sense of stability or you have a hard time saying that you've prospered and none of this is also to to mention that the, the countless Christians that are across the world who have given everything up to follow after the paths of God and to forsake the ways that are around them only to be harassed and only to be Uh, chased and persecuted and killed, those Christians who are in North Korea, those Christians who are underground in China, in Muslim nations, that are forced to flee for their very lives. How can they pray this? Are they truly prospering? But maybe some of you also have a hard time believing this because you've been told the opposite about what flourishing is. That to really live a, a thriving and a flourishing life, then you need to be true to yourself. That things like religion and outside authority only serve to stifle living to your fullest potential. Or that what God, seems, that what God says seems to constrict you from the ways that you see it, and that there's a, a real temptation to, to really cherry-pick or to put it all aside from what God says. But regardless of either difficulty, what we need, though, is our idea of a prosperous life to be redefined particularly in how we experience it in a current age. Because it's easy to unconsciously consider prosperity and flourishing and how the world defines it. That it's success, that it's life that's free from frustration, that it's ease and comfort, that it's having my desires met. But we can't judge or base what it is on human terms. We need to define it upon how God the creator intended it. Flourishing is growing in righteousness and truth. Flourishing is loving what is good. And it comes from understanding who God is and from who we are. And that means that the more that we meditate upon, upon God's word and meditating upon God himself there, then he begins to put our perspective of, him, of himself and us in their proper places. But we also, though, need to recognize that life isn't just the experience that we live right now. Life has a much longer perspective to it that continues on into eternity. And the psalm points that out in verses 5 and 6. It points us to this greater perspective on life that goes beyond our experiences right now. And What do we see? It says that the righteous will be vindicated by God. That those who have, been, who have delighted in his word, those who have prospered, In his righteousness will then flourish as they enter into his presence. And this requires eyes of faith to cut through our perceptions right now and to understand the reality of life. That what is seen as flourishing by the world is actually dry and fruitless, just like chaff. And that those who follow its ways then will be blown away, whereas those walking in the righteousness of God will stand firm and rooted. And a life of flourishing needs to account for this perspective. Flourishing cannot be determined solely by what's right now. At the same time, we can also be realistic and we can admit that it might be tough and difficult to walk along the paths of God. But there's comfort in this psalm also for us that comes in verse 6. It says that the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. See, we might feel pressure, particularly pressure inwardly that tries to convince us that we are stifling our true selves or living to our fullest potential. But the Hebrew idea, the Hebrew word for know, knowing there, isn't just an intellectual knowing. It is a knowledge that is wrapped up with intimate care. In Exodus 2, when the people of Israel are in bondage And in slavery in Egypt, it says that in in 2.25 that they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard them and the Lord knew them. Even as you feel the struggle trying to walk along the path of righteousness. Or that you're in a dry place. God knows and he cares about you and all of that. And He is the covenant Lord who does not break faith. You are known in those circumstances. And he will bring you then into the life of flourishing as he promises. Because we see this all here in one man. We have two paths with two ends, but we finally have one man. Blessed is the man. Who is the true man who is blessed, who, is, who flourishes, who prospers by delighting in the law of God? It's Jesus. He is the one who flourished. He is the one from whom all flourishing and life comes. It was Jesus who had a perfect delight for God's word. He even talked about it in terms of his sustenance. His food was to do the will of the Father. He was grounded in the scriptures here when it was most difficult. Even when he was tempted by Satan himself to take matters into his own hands and walk a different path, his response was, no, man lives by the word of God alone. As he contemplated crucifixion in the garden, he knew the Father's will as it was written in the word in the Old Testament. And he meditated upon that as he walked the road to the cross for people like you and me. And though his life may not have looked particularly prosperous, as he ended up then rejected by those who he came to save and ended up hanging naked on a cross, he flourished nonetheless in the end. His resurrection, his ascension into eternal glory is proof that he is the man who is blessed. He is the one who didn't just flourish in righteousness throughout his life. He is the one who is even flourishing right now. And he shows us then what the prosperous life is. It's a life of righteousness. And it's a life of wisdom which is willing to be counted as a fool now because of the glory that is laid up in store. But Jesus doesn't just show what the path to flourishing looks like. He himself is the very path to flourishing. The gospel message gives Jesus as the means, not just merely the model for flourishing. So that if you trust in him, if you rest in Jesus, then then what the Bible teaches is that you are united to him. That everything that he has, everything that is in him, is also then yours. And because of that tight union there of two becoming one, he gives you what's his. When you are united to Jesus, all that he has belongs to you. And that includes also his life and his flourishing that you share in his flourishing life because he freely shares it with you so that you too are then become blessed as the man, woman, child because Jesus is that blessed man because he is the flourishing one. So you might feel dry, you might feel withered, you might sometimes feel more like chaff than the planted and well-watered tree. You might look at your life and know what it means to have walked along the paths of the wicked. But in Christ, though, you are that watered and flourishing tree. He gives life to the withering and he gives water to the dry chaff. John 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well and she has a deep sexual past. And he offers her water, life, but not water from a well, spiritual water, running water, living water that, will, that flows from within him and it will never dry up. Living water that he then says will well up in her. He offers her the water of flourishing, water to wash away her guilt and to nurture the fruit of righteousness instead. Friends, he does that by giving his spirit the spirit that was upon him and causing him to flourish throughout his time on earth is the same spirit that he shares and that he pours out upon the church. And he waters us then with that spirit so that we can also be grow and that we we can grow and be fruitful even in the heat and in the barren places that life takes us. And perhaps you'll find then that when God's spirit dwells within you, giving you refreshment and life, that you'll delight more in his word. Because that's where the words of life and of grace are found. It's where we most clearly see God in all of his attributes. His power, his majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, his promises, his fulfillments, and his grace and mercy. That's where we read of the Christ who is the blessed man, the flourishing man, the prosperous man for you. So friends, pray that the spirit of Christ would continue then to nurture you by his word so that you might continue then to flourish in the life that Christ Jesus so beautifully and so richly gives to you. That Jesus is our flourishing. He is our very source and our vitality. He is our path to living the, the, the prosperous and the blessed life. And by his spirit and by the word of God, then we continue to learn how to walk along that path of righteousness that will bring us then to the blessed end. Let's pray. God, your word confronts us with two ways, with that of the world or that of your word. And even if we know that flourishing comes through your word, it's still difficult. It's difficult because of the heat that we feel. It's difficult because of our our own proneness to wander and our sin natures as we sang earlier, Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Lord, here is my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. We need strength to stay on the right way. We need strength to be rooted in your word. But we also need our affections stirred. We ask that you would create a love for your word in us. That your spirit would be active in us, would be showing us, enlightening our eyes to seeing its truth and to seeing you. That even when the times that we do stray and when we do fail to love your word as we ought, that we are still, we still have our life and our flourishing and our roots sunk deep in Christ. And let us hold fast to Jesus then as our life. We need our perspectives changed. Please do so by your word. We pray that you continue then to nurture us, to feed us, and to water us in Christ as we come to his table here. In his name, amen.